Chapter 10 of Ruffles and Danny, or The Responsibility of Ruffles, by Marjorie Watson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 10. Had Ruth remained in the clearing just a few minutes longer, she would have realized that the fate of the gray flannel trousers was not wholly determined by the consideration of the blueberry bushes. It was Richard who ran toward the little house, calling to others to follow. It was Richard who shinnied up the post of the little porch, swung himself up to the gutter, and gingerly crept along till within arm's length of the greedy, lapping, though at present very small, flames. He called to the men to throw him a hatchet, which after two or three unsuccessful attempts landed where he could catch it. He didn't put much confidence in the gutter, but he had to risk it. So leaning half his weight on the roof with his left hand, with his right he swung the hatchet, every blow of which sent the burning shingles flying, and these in turn were beaten out by the men below. It seemed almost like wasted time, for surely it would catch again somewhere else. But is splendid effort ever wasted, so long as there is a ray of hope? As if in answer to the unexpressed thought and undaunted determination of the fighters, the wind shifted just a few points. With exultation the men took renewed hope. One more hour's good struggle, and the victory was won. The last flickering flame was extinguished. The tired men gathered in groups, wiping their heated faces, for they were a sorry sight. Perspiration and smoke had smooched and streaked and smutted. Hmm, thought our friend Richard. I'm like to make an impressive introduction at a hotel. Fortunately for me, it is early in the season yet, and the lorgnette artillery will not be in active service. But it is safe to predict that the bellboys won't tumble over themselves in their desire to show me to my room. I can see the rascals now, a dig in the ribs with an elbow, a fearful contortion of one eye, a tongue in the right cheek. No tips but tipsy, eh? Picking up his coat, he stopped to survey the men standing in groups and gesticulating while they surmised as regards the origin of the fire. Ten to one it's them old blueberry pickers, growled one, and something dot to be done about it. It was a known fact that where the bushes are burned out in the spring, the summer crop of berries is the largest. Then Richard's eye lighted on Mr. Sanderson and Captain Frost. Well, I shan't be the only gentleman tramp to walk the streets, he muttered with satisfaction. Then he moved closer to these two. By jumping Jupiter, I believe it's, well, of all the luck, of course it is, and now I know where I saw the goddess. But who is the past hero of the crested wave he's talking to? Can't be, oh, I say, I'll certainly have to take something from my nerves if this sort of thing keeps up. Here I've only been in this remote little hamlet an hour or so, and I've narrowly escaped death through being run over by a goddess. I've joined the fire brigade, and now, if I listen hard, I think I can hear the sprouting of a budding detective within my being. I'll test this germinating talent. He carefully shook and beat his coat, dusted his smart straw hat as best he could, and sauntered over to the two gentlemen in question. He addressed himself to the older man. I beg pardon, sir, but can you direct me the nearest way to the Hotel Bayview? Gladly, young man. 
"'You are a stranger here?' asked the captain, as he offered his hand with a strong grip of good fellowship. Richard nodded in answer to the question. "'I am but just arrived, although you'd never guess it from my appearance.' with a deprecating gesture and a good-humoured laugh. "'Well, sir, you have allowed no time to pass before making our interests yours. Let me thank you heartily. And here's Mr. Sanderson, too, only been here a few days. May I introduce you to Mr. Sanderson of Colorado?' Richard lifted his hat. "'I am Richard Huntington, from Salem, and glad to meet you,' including both men in a graceful bow." "'Richard Huntington!' exclaimed the captain. "'Well, now, I might have known it. I'm more than ever glad to see you, sir. My daughter Mary has told me much about you, but she was not aware you were coming so soon. Welcome to Harwich, my boy.' The captain's face beamed with pleasure as he placed both hands on Richard's shoulders. Their eyes were on a level, and both were big men, but as Captain Frost had begun to stoop a trifle at the shoulders, he must have been the taller man at Richard's age. My wife will be glad to meet you and hear from her old and much-loved home. Mr. Sanderson was puzzled by an unaccountable feeling of discomfort all of a sudden. He glanced up to see if a cloud had crossed over the sun, for certainly a shadow had passed over something. It was an indefinable feeling. Perhaps he was just hungry after the unaccustomed physical exertion." you would scarcely find three more striking-looking men together anywhere. The struggle with the elements, and often with men, which inevitably falls to the lot of seafaring men, had left its stamp of a conqueror on the hale and hardy ex-captain. Mr. Sanderson was a finished product of enlightenment and discipline acquired by mental and moral training, which the dictionary defines as culture. He had all the ease and grace of a man of the world, and withal a normal, healthy, virile personality, while Richard was especially noticeable for his splendid physique, an open, wholesome, boyish face, a ready wit, and generally optimistic outlook on life. Captain Frost started Richard on the right path for the hotel after extracting a promise from him to show himself at the old white house at the very earliest possible moment. The captain and Mr. Sanderson remained to superintend the replacing of the household gods for Miss Susan and Miss Sarah, whose tears had turned to smiles, and their anguish of heart was replaced by silent prayers of thanksgiving. Richard was wondering, as he strolled once more through these most astonishing woods, where that will-of-the-wisp of a girl had disappeared to. Now the will of a wisp of a girl was again perched on the piazza rail, facing a most interested audience of four, to whom she told the tale of the morning, supposing that the little house was by this time enveloped in flames, and that the men were giving all their attention to stopping the progress of the fire at the edge of the meadow. Ruth was giving them a vivid picture of all the events from the moment when she passed Mary and Danny on her wild ride, and you may be sure that the morning's excitement lost no jot of interest in her telling of it. Danny listened with wide eyes. He was comfortably relaxed on dear Mrs. Frost's motherly lap as she gently rocked to and fro, occasionally running her fingers through the golden curls just for the pleasure of seeing them spring back and coil yet closer to Danny's head. 
I wonder who that young man could possibly be, pondered Mary. She and her mother had exchanged glances of keen enjoyment and appreciation, when Ruth, her face alive with mischievous enjoyment, came to the recital of the contretemps at the sharp bend of the woodland path. Eunice threw her apron over her head, alternately bending and straightening in a really painful fit of mirth. But Danny said, I hope you tell that young man you was sorry, Ruffles. Yes, I did, Dannykins. I rode back and told him I hoped he wasn't hurt and that he'd pardon us. And he replied, No, indeed, certainly, that is to say, and Ruth chuckled merrily again. Danny looked more solemn yet and thoughtfully announced, Well, I can't quite seem to get my head through that, Ruffles. Perhaps he's French. He was slightly disgruntled at the effect of his last remark. Older people had such a queer way of laughing when there really was nothing to laugh at. The sparkles disappeared, however, from Ruth's eyes, and consternation and pity filled the minds of Mary and her mother as Ruth progressed. "'Mother!' exclaimed Mary. "'It's Susan and Sarah Simpkins' house. There will be no insurance, nothing. They will be utterly ruined.' "'Land o' love, Miss Frost, of all the people in the whole town, ain't they the very last ones should be left to stand on their own feet?' queried Eunice. Danny had been forgotten for the time being. No one noticed that the lips of his sensitive little mouth had been quivering for several minutes, and the corners drooping ominously. So the storm of his grief burst without any warning. Rushing across the piazza to Ruth, he flung himself in a very abandonment of childish sorrow. He threw his head back, uttering piercing wails and screams. He stamped his feet. For when grief broke the bounds of Danny's self-control, there was a tempest indeed. If Ruth had noticed, she would have averted it, but she had not seen. This was a new and totally unexpected aspect of Danny to Mrs. Frost and Mary. They felt utterly helpless and uncomprehending. Ruth placed her hands on Danny's shoulders, gently pushed him back a step, and commanded him to stop at once. He gazed up at his sister through the glistening, streaming tears, his little body shaking with the violence of his sobs. "'I don't want,' he screamed, "'I don't want that house to burn down!' Again he stamped his foot in baffled rage. "'Ruffles! Ruffles!' he screamed in a sharp crescendo. "'They won't have any bed to sleep in!' Then he buried his face in her skirts. Ruth calmly picked up the shaking little figure, carried him to the further end of the piazza, sat down, and held him close for a minute. Then she said, her mouth close to his ear, "'Danny, hush, I want to talk to you.' Very slowly the sobs quieted and came farther and farther apart. "'Now, Danny, listen.' What good does it do for you to scream like that? That won't help those ladies any, will it? We must talk it over and see if there is anything we can do to help. Let us go home to Dewey and we'll plan something, shall we? In less than a minute Danny was all smiles, even while the tears still stood large and shining, trembling on the edge of his curling lashes 
till he drew his chubby hand across and wiped them all away. They bade good-bye to their friends, and scampered home to wait for father, who would help them think what could be done for poor Miss Susan and Miss Sarah. End of chapter 10